The failure rate for small business is incredibly high, but it doesn't have to be. You know, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm of the mindset that no business has to fail. This is the Authority Builder Podcast. This is the place to come if you're building a professional practice and you want to be seen as the leader in your market. We're going to interview the top experts throughout professional services, and we're going to share insights with you to help you grow your firm and be positioned as the only choice that clients ever want. Welcome to the Authority Builder Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Gordon, and we got a fantastic interview for you today. Uh, you may have noticed that on the podcast, we're doing fewer interviews going forward, but we're going to be doing some deep dives. And I'm being very particular about who we pick to come on. And, and today's guest uh, is someone that I've been looking forward to talking to for quite a while. Um, if you go and check out his YouTube channel, you will be amazed at the depth of thinking that he brings to entrepreneurship. And so today I'm talking with Jeffrey Kent. And uh, Jeffrey says most entrepreneurs fail in business because they need funding, but they don't know how to get it. As a serial entrepreneur who's launched and scaled and exited 20 plus businesses in the last five decades, he now mentors entrepreneurs through the process of getting and building a fundable plan that gets money they need to grow their business and exit when they're ready and uh, and how they want to exit and uh, is really a passionate advocate for entrepreneurship as a solution to the world's problems. And so I'm excited to have you here, Jeffrey Kent. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for having me here today. So how did you get to this, this stage of your career um, where you've, you've started and grown 20 plus businesses and you really mentored a lot of entrepreneurs? Um, well, you know, I mean, I, I started, uh, I launched my first entrepreneurial venture at the age of 12 in eighth grade. Um, and, and, and don't ask me, you know, how, you know, what, what led to that? Cause I have, I, I'm still trying to figure that out, but, um, but, uh, I, I'm a military brat. So my dad was in the air force and, and we moved back from Germany to, uh, New York, um, when I was 12 and, you know, some friends I'd made, uh, asked me, uh, if I was interested in a job and, and they were telling me that the commissary or the, or the grocery store on the base was, was hiring. So I went you know, got a job there and uh, sacking groceries for tips. And I was just very uh, meticulous about what I did and, you know, and and just very conscientious about how I interacted with other human beings, uh, particularly mother, mothers of military, you know, servicemen and, and uh, who, are, who are the primary shoppers uh, um, at the commissary. And and um, and so uh, I became beloved uh, there and uh, made very good money and, and tips, got an opportunity through through there to um uh, stock uh, a shelf for lifesavers. Um, they were coming out with new products and that they were displaying at the, the grocery store. And, you know, so they hired me to, to stock their shelves, keep them uh, uh, neat. And um, something occurred to me. <laughs> I just looked at, you know, the re- the, uh, the the wholesale price or the, yeah, the wholesale price uh, of, you know, the, the products that I was stocking for them. And I knew that what kids were paying for, particularly you know, they'd come out with the bubble yum, bubble gum. And I, I knew what kids were paying in the store for this. And, and I said, you know, this is like four times what, what uh, kids are paying in the store. So I'm like, I can take my tip money and buy, you know, uh, uh, as many bags as I can, I can afford, rip it open, take these individual packs of bubble gum and sell them for twice what I'm paying for them. And still, you know, it'll be half of what kids are paying in the store. So I started doing that. I, I 
uh, with all my tip money, taking it to school, selling out of my locker. And, you know, I was literally making thousands of dollars and this is quite a while ago. You know, <laughs> and, um, and, and it, you know, never occurred to me how, how, how much money I was actually making at the time. Um, but I did like, a you know, looked at the value of money over time and what I was making then. And, you know, cause my father had actually caught me one day counting money in my room and he was wondering where I got all this money from. And, you know, um, but I realized that I was probably the day he caught me, I, I was probably counting more money than he made in a month in the military, you know? Wow. Um, so it really occurred to me, okay, wow, that, that, that was unusual. Right. So from there, um, you know, my, because my parents grew up in the, um, depression era, you know, they, they, they weren't risk takers, um, didn't raise myself, my brother, and my sisters to take risks. So we're all overeducated. We were, we were, we were basically groomed to work for someone else, you know? So I started this corporate career, first job with Xerox and AT&T, then Deloitte Consulting. I have, you know, an MBA, I have, you know, BBA, and I was getting fired from every single corporate job I got. You know, and I was doing, I was trying di different uh, entrepreneurial businesses part time while I was in corporate America and failing at everything. So I got to 49 years old and realized everything's not, nothing's working, you know, and, and while I was thinking, having, you know, going through this self discovery process, I get a call from uh, this young kid that I had actually hired. Uh, a couple of years earlier in, into a, a former client. And uh, he said, uh, hey, I you know, just had uh, dinner with my brother-in-law. We, we've, we've got a tech idea, but we've never done anything entrepreneurial and we know you have. Could we take you to dinner and pick your brain for an hour and a half? So that, that dinner led to me writing their business plan. And when we finished the business plan, you know, they said, well, we're in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This isn't Silicon Valley. We're in our early 20s. No one's going to take us seriously. We need someone with gray hair to run the company. Would you be, in, be interested in buying equity in the business and running the company? So I bought 51% of the company, became the CEO on day one, and we launched this thing. And we ended up turning it into one of the fa fastest growing companies in the country and selling it six years later. Um, that was literally a decade ago and, and I haven't done anything since. So, um, um, you know, so now what, uh, literally on a daily basis, I get calls from entrepreneurs asking me questions about that company it was called Cognis IT. Um, you know, how did you form a relationship with Dell computer? How did you land a seven figure contract with the school district of Philadelphia when you had, you know, virtually no techs, <laughs> you know, um, you know, all these different questions that, that I get asked and, and I answer the questions. And when I, when I finished every conversation ends the same way, they're like, you know, you have way too much knowledge in your brain. You need to share that with the world. Why don't you write a book? So fortunately, I, I, I have a friend in the publishing industry, got me a deal, start writing my book. Then he introduces me to um, a company in Seattle, Washington that takes all their content and converts it into online coursework. So the CEO of that company said, Jeff, stop writing your book. Young people don't like to read. They need to be entertained with videos. And oh, by the way, because you're narrating your course, um, all the text that you have to narrate that you, you'll end up writing will end up becoming your book anyway. And so I made that pivot in 2021, ended up creating a um, seven-week self-paced online course to teach entrepreneurs the principles that all successful entrepreneurs infuse into their businesses in order to succeed. And I had actually, 
you know, so with that tech venture, because um, that was a uh, private cloud computing company, I I actually went back to, so I, my MBA from the Wharton School of Business, one of my majors was entrepreneurial management. So I was fortunate enough to have taken classes from five professors at, at Penn. So I actually, before we launched that business, I went back to Penn, sat down with my five professors and asked them one question. And I said, you know, if you were to give me a piece of advice that if I implemented it would maximize the probability I'd succeed in this venture, what would that advice be? So I had five incredible conversations. Each professor gave me a list of books to read. I finished reading all the books. And by the time I finished the last book, it it kind of occurred to me that it's almost like I was reading the same book over and over and over again. <laughs> you know, I'm like, uh, successful entrepreneurs say they do the same things. I'm hearing a lot of repetitive themes. So I jotted down these themes and said, okay, well, when we launch this business, I'm going to infuse all of these themes into the business to see what happens. So I did that. And to my surprise, everything worked, you know? So, so as I said, you know, six years later, we had one of the most successful businesses in the country, fastest growing, you know, eight, 5,000, Philly 100 continually, you know, I'm on television, radio, newspapers, magazines, you know, everyone wants to know what am I doing? So, and as I said, we sold the business. So um, that that's kind of gotten me to where I'm at now, where, you know, my youngest has a year of college left. And and so I, I affectionately tell my daughters when the youngest is done, I'm done. <laughs> you know, that's probably not going to be the case, but, but I, but I really at this stage of the game just want to give back. Right. So, so for me, it's, you know, I look at how can I use my God given talents to, make a positive impact on on the world to benefit my daughter daughters and their generation and it's you know again I, I was born to be an entrepreneur I realized that you know unfortunately it took me 49 years on earth to realize that but I did realize that and and so you know for me uh, a lot of the the issues that that bother me about you know uh, huge societal issues like poverty unemployment crime I think are all you know, primarily related to lack of opportunity. And I think entrepreneurship actually is a great uh, panacea for a lot of, to, to resolve a lot of these issues because it, it it creates opportunity, right? So so for me, it's, you know, my goal now is I'm trying to identify entrepreneurs who come from communities that are disproportionately, you know, impacted by issues like poverty, crime, unemployment, and, um um, to to encourage more people from those communities to take up entrepreneurship and then pride, provide them with the training to learn how to responsibly scale exponential business growth, launch scale exponential business growth and get them, them to an exit, their desired exit that allows them to create generational wealth for themselves and their families. And oh, by the way, if they're able to create tens, hundreds of jobs in their communities, uh, because uh, sociologists and psychologists will tell us everyone's impacted by implicit bias. We all tend to hire in our own self-image because it makes us comfortable. And so if, if we find these individuals in these communities and encourage them to pursue entrepreneurship, they're going to launch the businesses in their communities. They're going to hire people from their communities. And so again, if, the, if these are communities that are, are disproportionately impacted by these huge societal issues, Every job they create, particularly if these jobs are, are paying meaningful wages, are, are having an indelible impact on these huge issues, right? So that, that, that's, that's, uh, it's a long, long uh, answer to your question, but, but that's how I got to where I'm at.
Well, that's, that's a great answer. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and I, I completely agree with you. I think that entrepreneurship is, is sort of the panacea that I, w- I don't want to say it's the panacea we've been looking for because we've known we've had it. Yeah. It's just not the easiest to implement. Right. And in, in a world where we all want to have a push button sort of top down solution, it's a bottom up. You got to, somebody's got to take the risk. Yeah. And a lot of those people are going to fail. And so, I mean, you look at the stats of business failures and everybody knows it's like what, 95% or something fail in the first five right. years. Right. Only about 4% of businesses ever make it over the million dollar a year in revenue mm-hmm. mark. And, and I mean, that's still a lot of businesses that make it over, but there's a, enormous number that never get there, yeah. uh, never reach any meaningful scale. So mm-hmm. I, I got to go back to your five, uh, your five themes, because that sounds like that might be the answer to overcoming yeah. that big hurdle. So, so what are the five themes? If somebody is, is either they've been in business for a while and they're trying to make it sustainable and scalable, or maybe they come across this and they have that spark and they want to take the risk and, and go and create some opportunity for themselves and others. What do they need to put into it to make it successful? What have you discovered? Yeah, so um, I'll start with um, a quote by Jim Rohn uh, that that basically says, um, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with, right? So for the, the for business, my translation of that of that um, quote is, you know, if you want to succeed, surround yourself with successful people and do what they do, and you'll experience what they've experienced, right? So you know, when I looked at, you know, what are these things successful people are doing, you know, um, you know, first of all, they take the time to figure out what they're passionate about, and then they build businesses around their passions, right? They, 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 they do what they love, and then they love what they do, right? <laughs> or, or they love what they do because they do what they love, you know, the, the, the love that they have for what they do permeates everything they do. And that, attracts everyone to them right so so that's the, the the kind of the first thing the second thing is they laser focus on identifying a niche target market that they can dominate so you know it's all about finding problems to solve first of all but um when you identify a niche target market you can you can um a service and solve a problem for, um, and, and uniquely solve a problem for, and I have ways to, to go about doing that. You know, what ends up happening is when you dominate an each target market, you start to build name recognition. And so when you expand outside of that niche target market, it's easier to expand and gain more customers because more than likely they'll have heard your name before. And so we tend as human beings not to trust salespeople anyway, because we don't know what their motivation is for, for, you know, approaching us in the first place, you know? And, and so the more you can, the more trust that you can build into the process um, to, to lower the barrier of, of entry, you know, the better off you are and the easier it are, easier it is to actually try to make a sale. So, you know, if someone's heard your name before and maybe has heard something in reference to your reputation, that, that, that makes that process easier. So, um, that's the second thing. The third thing is they form unconventional strate- uh, strategic alliances with much larger organizations. So they get away from what everyone does. So when in the selling process, we, most people typically do what's called push selling. You have a product or service and you're pushing it on an unsuspecting marketplace. You know, so again, people tend to not trust salespeople. 
So that's a really difficult way to, to, to market anything. A more effective way to, to, to market is to what's called pull sell. So you form these strategic alliances with much bigger organizations because, you know, small companies and big companies actually work very well together because they have different strengths and weaknesses, right? So large companies have tons of bureaucracy. They, they, they have lots of opportunity because they have lots of money to spend on marketing and public relations. But when they when they identify opportunities for them to go after those opportunities, it's cumbersome because of the bureaucracy built into large organizations. You know, you have to ask for permission multiple times from multiple people at multiple levels to get anything done. Small organizations don't have that bureaucracy, so they can they can turn on a dime. So you can form these relationships with larger organizations where you use their marketing dollars to find the opportunity. They can feed you with pre-qualified leads. You do the work and then you find a way to split the revenue. Right. So and, and you actually can create. Um, so, some really robust value uh, uh, for for your customers when you start to look at uh, four significant uh, specific quadrants of of big companies to 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 partner with. So you want to actually look at you know companies that have products and services that complement yours. You want to look at um, your suppliers. You want to look at your customers, and you actually want to look at your competitors. You know, the fourth thing they do is as they start to get these customers from their strategic alliance partners, they infuse world-class customer service into what they do. You know, they, they, they transform the customer experience in, into more of a familial-like experience so that their customers, you know, evolve into uh, evangelists who end up marketing their brand for them. Um, fifth, they, they focus on not only the lagging metrics that you have to put on your financial statements to report to the IRS and every, and, you know, investors and everyone else, but they focus on the leading metrics. Uh, so they monitor and measure leading metrics that lead up to sales and dynamically alter the, um, both the methodology and the, the rationale for how much uh, activity they need to do on a daily basis uh, with with their methodology for tracking these leading metrics so that they guarantee that they will always either meet or exceed their sales goals. And then the last thing they do, the sixth thing they do is, is that, you know, successful entrepreneurs surround themselves with uh, an, an A-team of co-founders, executive leaders, managers, staff, uh, mentors and advisors and boards of directors to give themselves the highest probability of executing on their vision, whatever that vision is. So when you do all of these six things in concert, um, it's really, really difficult to fail. Um, and so, yeah, the, the failure rate for small business is incredibly high, but it doesn't have to be. You know, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm of the mindset that no business has to fail. Businesses don't fail for all the reasons you ask entrepreneurs why they fail. 80% of them are going to say, I didn't have, you know, some, something related to lack of capital. That's not why you failed. You failed because you didn't execute. You know, the, 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 the formula for success in business is out there. It's not disseminated well, but it is out there. You know, lots of people have succeeded. If you do the research, you can figure out what the formula is. I just gave everyone the formula, but, but you can figure out what the formula is. It, is. it exists. But once people get the formula, if they get it, so a lot of it is people aren't getting the formula. And then when they do get it, it's 
you have to execute on the formula as well. And, and so that's the, that's the bigger issue. Um, and, and just to, to drive this point home, you know, so I'll talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who are looking for capital. And I'll ask, you know, one of the first questions I'll ask them is, have you, have you actually pitched to someone to, to try to raise capital? And when they say yes, I'm like, okay, well, who did you pitch to? And they'll tell me who they pitched to and, and, you know, okay. And so tell me your deal. Explain your deal to me. And then, oh, you know, well, I was trying to raise a million dollars and, and, uh, and I, I could pay this back in 10 years and I was going to give someone 5% annual interest back on their, on their investment. Okay. Sounds good. Um, who are you talking to? I was talking to venture capitalists. No surprise you didn't get any capital. Venture capitalists don't do deals like that, you know? So a lot of times you find that, you know, it's not a deal itself. I, I, I actually don't believe there, there is such a thing as a good, bad or mediocre deal. Deals are deals. They are what they are. You know, it's, it's, it's all about getting the deal you have in front of the person that's predisposed to do the type of deal you have. And that rarely happens. And that's why, you know, so often entrepreneurs fail to get capital. They're talking to the wrong people. And, and it has a lot to do with their lack of understanding of the financial services and investment industry. So as I'm listening to those five principles that you outlined, mm -hmm. three of them really have to do with your relationships. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I speak on at least a weekly basis. Um, and, uh, and I tell entrepreneurs all the time, particularly when I had my cloud computing company, I didn't hire any salespeople. You know, I didn't need to. My customers sold for me. When I sold the business, you know, and I had hundreds of customers and I looked at my my list of customers, I could literally point to any customer and tell you what other customer referred me to that customer. You know, my customers sold for me. You know, if my customers weren't selling for me, my employees were selling for me. If my employees weren't selling for me, my strategic alliance partners were selling for me, right? So we partnered with Dell Computer. You know, and and the and we ended up partnering and landing a, a huge contract with the school district of Philadelphia to to manage all their information technology needs. And the first project we got, we made sure we outperformed. And and once we did that, Dell started bringing us into their contract with the city of Philadelphia and with other contracts they had. So, you know, as I said, your strategic alliance partners, your customers, um, your your all the all, your a team all of these people can act as your external sales force yeah and and it's a different way of of thinking i think it's a less direct method and i think that's why a lot of entrepreneurs have a hard time kind of wrapping their head around it they want to go direct to the sale it seems like the easiest route doesn't it yeah well well i i so i give you know i i love using analogies because people understand them you know better so i i, I tell people i was, let, let's say you have a daughter and your daughter joins girl scouts and starts to sell girl scout cookies you know who's the first person your daughter's going to go to to try to sell cookies to you and your wife, you know, or, or you and your husband, you know, why? Because you have, you have a relationship, you know, they have a relationship with you uh, and, and you have a vested interest in seeing her succeed um, and you don't want her to fail, <laughs> you know, and you're going to do everything in your power to make sure she doesn't fail. So, so that's why I say you need to create these familial like relationships with customers so that, you know, when, when you think about, you know, as you're serving them, it's like, 
you know, and I actually have this exercise I use when I when I teach this segment of of because I have something called Entrepreneur University that I've launched on Alignable, where I'm teaching these six things at a higher level. But the week that I cover, you know, forming these, uh, um, you know, infusing world class customer service and into your relationships to transform customers into evangelists, I'll, I'll walk entrepreneurs through through an exercise, and I basically say, you know, think of think of someone that you're like you know, incredibly loyal to and have been for, for an extended period of time, at least like, let's say a decade, it can be a, a restaurant in your, in your town. It could be, um, it could be a, a automobile brand. It could be, you know, computer brand, it, you know, anything, just think of a brand, a company, a, an organization that you've just been slavishly loyal to for a long period of time. And then once you identify who that is, I ask, you know, think of all the reasons why, you are so loyal to that that brand or that company or that restaurant or whatever it is, you know, and and jot them down. And then once they've jotted all that stuff down, I'm like, now take those things and infuse them into your business. Start doing all those things for your customers. And guess what? Your customers will be equally as loyal to you as you are to that brand or that company or that organization, right? And, and so, people sit there and say, wow, that's really easy. I'm like, it is easy, <laughs> you know? So can we make this practical for a minute with some examples? How in your in your tech company, what, what are some examples of how you did that um, and, and really rolled it out? Yeah. So we were like two weeks old. And um, so we knew, you know, it was myself and two co-founders. So one 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 person was, you know, he was technical brought our initial clients in because they were clients of his from another employer. Um, and so he was doing all the technical work. And then the, the other two of us um, were, you know, I'm, I'm more of a finance operations person. The other person was um, more of a, you know, he's, you know, sales background. Um, but we knew we, you know, we really needed to get clients. That was kind of the biggest priority early. And so, the two of us said, you know, okay, well, what we'll do is let's do a search on the internet and find organizations that we could potentially get clients from. And let's, let's start attending events. So we'll split the list. And so I had this, uh, I found this procurement conference in Atlantic city. Um, we were literally two weeks old. And so I said, okay, I registered for the conference. I go to Atlantic city and I get into this huge, you know, conference hall and, um, and as I'm just, you know, I walk in and, you know, stop and just do a survey uh, of, of the room. And so I see in the middle of the floor, I see this booth uh, for the, it was the African-American Chamber of Commerce of, of Philadelphia. And no one's at this booth. And, and, and this wasn't the procurement conference wasn't um, related to diversity at all. This was just a general procurement conference. So no one was at their booth. Um, but the, the, I mean, the auditorium was filled with people and I saw one person working the booth and she just looked, you know, really bored. And so I just made a beeline and went to her booth, introduced myself, started talking. And, you know, she asked, Oh, are you a member of the chamber? I'm like, Hey, we, we, I'm literally, our company's two weeks old. We haven't, we haven't joined anything, you know, and, uh, and we don't have a lot of money. So, but she said, Oh, you know, membership's only 250 bucks a year, you know, and so I took took all the information and and then, you know, the rest of the day, because it was a full day conference, as I'm walking around, I kept noticing, you know, there were, you know, weren't many people going to the booth. So every maybe hour I would go over there and just start 
start telling her bad dad jokes, you know, and, and we just built this camaraderie up. And uh, so at the end of the day, I, you know, we leave the conference and a couple of weeks later, I'm in downtown Philadelphia. I have a, a client visit. Client visit ends early. And I'm in the vicinity of the chamber's offices. So I said, you know, hey, I got some time. Let me let me just stop into the chamber office and see how they're doing. And so I stop in and I, I see Lynn, the person I saw in Atlantic City. She's at the front desk. Um, so she she gives me a hug and we start talking. And, and as we're talking, I'm hearing alarm bells in the background. And so I said, Lynn, what is that noise? And she says, oh, our server crashed. I said, Lynn, I think it's a little more important to take care of that than to talk to me, you know, and uh, she's like, oh, don't worry about it. She's like, uh, we've already called our, our tech support company and they can't get here for a week. And I'm like trying to think to myself, who in the world are you using for tech support that can't get here in a week? You know, so I'm, but, uh, but I didn't ask that. But I, I, I said, uh, Lynn, how are you getting any work done? Because I know, you know, that it was a big enough office where they're using servers. So all of your processing power is in your server, not on, not in your computer. So everything you do gets processed through the server. If the server's down, you literally can't get any work done, you know? So she said, uh, you know, so basically, uh, where someone's working on something, when they're done with the document, they save it to a flash drive, they walk it over to the next desk, that person starts doing what they need to do. And when and, and we, it's almost like an assembly line. And when everyone's done, you know, we, we, we take the flash drive and someone runs to uh, the nearest Staples, which I knew was only, it was like a mile away. And they print it and come back. And I'm like, oh my God, that, you know, I, I mean, I felt really bad. And they weren't even my customer. You know, so I'm like, Lynn, um, I need to go outside to make a call. So I exited their office, get on the phone, called my office and um, got on with one of my texts. And I said, you know, do me a favor. Um, you know, we were in suburban Philadelphia, so we were probably like 30 minutes away. So I said, get in the car and come down. Um, I, I'm at the Chamber of Commerce and I need you to look at their server and see what's going on. And uh, so, you know, he comes down, looks at the server was able to patch it and get it up and running again. Um, but then he comes to me and, and he says, Jeff, he says, um, the problem is their server is dying. He said, it, it's, it's actually not a server. It's, it's a desktop machine that's, that's been retrofitted to act like a server. Uh, and it's dying. He said, when I opened it up, it's, it's all used parts. The youngest part I could find was 20 years old. And he said, literally, this thing is, is dying. He said, so I got it back up and running, but it's going to continue to crash. And eventually, you know, one of these crashes, you're not going to be able to recover from because this thing is just so old. He said, they really need a new server. So I thanked him for, you know, uh, coming and getting, getting them back up and running. He goes back to the office. I pull in aside and retell what he told me to her. And she says, well, can we buy, buy a server from you? And we didn't do that. We, we didn't resell computer hardware and software. That just wasn't part of the, what we did in business. Um, but we did for the, the servers we bought that we used to service our clients, we bought from Dell. So I said, well, I only have a relationship with Dell computers. So if you don't mind buying from Dell, I can pretend it's something that I'm going to use order it for you and just have it delivered here. And she's like, yeah, okay, that would, that would work. So then once she did that, I said, well, okay, well, I might as well 
you know, I called the office and 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 got that tech on the phone again. I'm like, I know we have some spare servers in in the office. Do me a favor, um, clear up a, a spare server, bring it back down, and uh, and then get these guys set up on the spare server because servers tend to get built from scratch and they rarely are built in this country. So, um, you know, normally it takes about a week to get a, a new server. So we lent them a server for free for a week. Then when their new server came, we we went back out to pick up our old server. And when we did that, um, Lynn tells me that, oh, well, you know, we've met internally and we've decided that your company is going to be our IT support vendor now. <laughs> so I've, I haven't had any conversations about price, nothing, you know, it's just, okay. So I told her what the price was. She said, just give me a contract. They signed it right away. And so fast forward, I sell the company six years later. I look at a, um, a, a, a client list. And I realized that the, the Chamber of Commerce had referred no fewer than 10 customers to us over that six-year period. Wow. And, and I, I recalled, I would go to their two different events they would have. And, and as soon as I walked in the room, when Lynn saw me, she, she was in a she could be in a heated conversation with other people. She would stop her conversation, run over, hug me and kiss me drag me to the conversation she was having and introduce me like I was the best thing since sliced bread to these people and just sell my services for me. You know, they're like, you have to do business with this guy. He's fantastic. We, we used him this and she'd retell the story. And before I knew it, I'd have a new client, you know, so that that's, that's how you can do that. That's yeah. That's a great story. And, and I think that's something that's approachable for just about everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, you can, you can take the principles in there and, and apply them anywhere. Um, I think often what will hold people back from implementing something like that is they think, Oh, that's the slow road. But my guess, I I don't know. You tell me how it's gotta be like a snowball at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, you know, I also uh, I tell people that uh, the easiest sale to make is the sale to the customer you already have, you know, and so so when when you when you so everything you need to learn from success in terms of marketing to customers, you can learn from literally one customer. And so when you focus on doing the best you can for the for the one customer you have, what ends up happening is not only do they buy everything you sell for the duration of the life of your company, but they end up referring you to to all of their peer group. And it becomes an easy sale in that, you know, I started the first 11 years of my career in Xerox and AT&T were in sales. And sales is very, very difficult, right? Because um, as I said, people don't trust salespeople. You know, you don't know when when I call you on the phone or knock on your door or whatever, and I'm telling you I'm a salesperson, you don't know whether I've taken the time to research you, to understand what are your pain points, how how can I solve your pain point through a product or service I market versus, you know, I'm being overly compensated to sell this one particular product in my bag. And so that's what I'm pushing on you because I know I'm going to make a lot of money, right? So what we end up doing, since we don't know your your uh, your reasoning for trying to market is I'm just going to put up a wall and I'm not going to talk to you at all. You know, so selling is incredibly difficult. And, 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 and I found out that, you know, when I finally became good at selling, it was you, you sell through service, not through sales. Right. Um, um, so it's all about servicing other people. And, and, um, 
as I said, when you build these relationships, it, and it can start with one customer, they, they start to refer you to their peers. And, and again, what happens is we trust our peers, you know, so so if you have, I mean, you think about it, if if, if I tried to sell you something, you probably wouldn't listen. But if your next door neighbor who you have a relationship with, you know, talks about a product or service he or she is using and they love you know, and they know that you have a similar need because, you know, your your lawn needs to, needs to get cut too every week or, you know, whatever the case may be. And then they're telling you about some product they're using that's doing a great job for them. More than likely, you're going to say, well, you know, tell me more. You know, what are you paying for that? You know, you're going to ask all these questions that you would ask the actual vendor, you know, but you're going to get it from someone you trust. And, and so you're going to get the real answers. And then, then you know, if, if you like what you hear, you're going to say, well, you know, hey, can you refer me to whoever it is you're using? And when, so if I'm the person that gets the referral, you know, because I'm the, I'm the person providing the product or service, when I get that phone call, I can actually talk myself out of a sale if I, if I talk too much. You know, I, I got to realize that when I'm getting a referral from, a, from someone that's a peer to that person, they, they know everything. They, they know what I charge. They know, you know, what my solutions are. They know how my solutions impact a customer. They've heard all of that, you know, so all they want from me is a contract. You know, and, um, and, and, and again, that, that just balloons. It's, it, it's, it's kind of like the, you know, the, the, the game you played when you're a kid where, where, you know, okay, I'm going to tell you the teacher tells one kid something. Okay. Tell the next kid something. Yeah. And he just keeps spreading, you know, it, it, the way it spreads, it, 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 you know, it doesn't take a really long period of time before, you know, the entire school knows what, what the first, you know, I mean, it, the, the actual message may have gotten, you know, change it a little bit, but, but, but it doesn't take a long period of time for everyone here. So kind of the same thing goes for if, you, if you're doing great work with, with a customer, you know, th- that will multiply very, very quickly, you know? Um, yeah. And I would imagine particularly if you're in a, a very niche focused market, word is going to spread even faster because those relationships already exist within that market. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I ask entrepreneurs three questions because I'm, I'm like, okay, you probably as an entrepreneur, you've gone to some seminar or something. They talked about developing an elevator pitch and value proposition. I'm like, throw all that crap out the window. I'm like, I, I'm going to ask you three yes or no questions. <laughs> and you'll figure out what your value proposition is at the end of it. And question number one is, you know, the, whatever your product or service is, does it exist anywhere in the world? Yes or no? You know, and, and, and the answer is always yes. Right. If someone tells me, Oh, no, I, I, I created this from scratch. No, you didn't. You know, you, 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 you may have created a different way to do something, but what you do exists, you know, and I, I give them the example of the, the invention of the telephone phone. We attribute Alexander Graham Bell to inventing the telephone. He did not. The telephone was invented 200 years before Alexander Graham Bell did. We just at the time didn't have a country and we didn't have a patent office. Right. Um, so. There, there's absolutely nothing in the world that anyone's going to invent that no other of the 8 billion people on earth have come up with that same idea at the same time, right? Um, you know, there are no unique ideas. So your product or service exists. Yes. Um, then the next question is, is every customer in the world who could use that product or service using it from one of your customers? Yes or no? There you actually might say no. You might be able to find a niche somewhere uh, of people that aren't being serviced by com- competitors. So then my, I tell people, oh, well, that's your value proposition. 
service, focus on the group that no one's servicing, you know, become the, you know, if I'm an information technology service provider, I'm the information technology service provider that services people with freckles because no one's servicing people with freckles. I don't know why, but, but you know, let that become, you know, gain the name recognition from that and let that, you know, uh, uh, that name recognition lead you into new markets. But if, if you say, yeah, everybody's being serviced by somebody, then the last question is, is everyone happy that's being serviced? If they are, I tell them, shut your business down and figure out something else to do. If your product exists, everyone's being served and everyone's happy, you can't add value and you're going to fail. But on the other hand, if you know you can find customers who aren't happy, service them, focus on servicing those customers. Now you just need to find a unique way of servicing them. So you can do that via um, speed of service. That's the FedEx model. You know, post office existed, but they weren't efficient. So FedEx came into the marketplace and said, we'll, we'll deliver a package on time faster, you know, and, 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 and rely more reliable, more reliably than post office. And they've thrived as a result. You can differentiate through costs of service. So there are two ways, high and low. So the high model is, is uh, Rolls Royce, you know, cars existed. But, but Rolls-Royce realized there's a group of very wealthy people that want bespoke purchasing experiences as it relates to automobiles. So if we give them the option of choosing everything in and out of that car, you know, and, and, and so that they know when I drive that car off the showroom floor, I'm the only one in the world who has this particular car. I'm willing to pay a million dollars for it, right? Um, low, the low end of the pricing spectrum is the Walmart model. You know, when Sam Walton invented Walmart, you know, um, you know, he realized, hey, in the country, you can't find grocery stores, you can't find department stores, you know. And so let me let me put stores in places where no one else is and price accordingly so that people in those environments can afford to buy in, in, in the stores I, I put up. Um, and he was so successful that he started to then move his stores into the suburbs. And then he was still successful and he moved them into the cities. And I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Virtually every retailer I can think of has been drawn, drawn, drawn out of business because of Walmart, right? I mean, JCPenney's doesn't exist. Sears doesn't exist. You know, there are all these organizations that no longer exist because of Walmart. Uh, and then last but not least, um, you can differentiate by the uh, comprehensiveness of the solution that you offer. And this is kind of the Amazon.com model where Amazon.com in the nineties started out as a book selling or, you know, online book selling, you know, you had border, borders, Barnes and Nobles, but they didn't sell books online. So they're like, okay, well, we'll sell books online that took off. And then now you can buy anything on Amazon.com. I was actually speaking at uh, in Detroit back in March, and I just I was jokingly saying I, I said this and and said you know you can probably buy a house on Amazon.com you know and I just said jokingly someone from the audience stopped me and they said you can they said they they, they actually sell 3D printed houses on Amazon I was like are you kidding me. I'm like, wow, I did, I did not know that. I, was, I didn't know that either. I was just joking, you know, but that told me you could, be, you know, I mean, so and for them, it's like, whatever you want, you can find it here. And so that's, that's the other way that, so, so when, when you find these niche opportunities, it's just, how do you, how do you service that market? But, you know. 
Well, this has been fantastic, Jeffrey. I have kept you longer than I than we agreed upon, and I apologize for that. I know you have a really busy day. No problem. No problem. We we could probably go for hours. I I feel like we've only maybe scratch the surface of, of your wisdom around building companies. So I, I know you've got a lot of stuff online. Where can people go if they want to take a deeper dive beyond what we've talked about today? Yeah. So my website is www.thinkbigwithjeffreykent.com. Jeffrey uh, is the old English spelling. So it's G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y. Um, I, I, I also have, um, uh, so if you just type in Think Big with Jeffrey Kent, I have a YouTube channel. I have a Facebook page. I have a LinkedIn page. I'm on Alignable, uh, Quora, um, Instagram and Twitter. So, so uh, easiest way is just to type in Think Big with Jeffrey Kent and, and, and any of those other platform names and, and you'll, you'll get to my channel. Perfect. Well, we'll link that up uh, in the show notes for everybody. We'll link to the YouTube channel. Tremendous, deep videos there. Um, you've been very generous with sharing your wisdom. And and I'm uh, thankful that you agreed to invest some, some of your valuable time with me today. Uh, it's been really great. So thanks again for being here. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Authority Builder Podcast. Here are three ways you can expand your authority. Number one, get a copy of the Million Dollar Book. In it, I show you how to multiply your authority by writing a best-selling book in less than 90 days guaranteed. After all, you're the best spokesperson for your ideas. Go to authoritybuilderpodcast.com slash book and get your copy. Number two, join me for an upcoming Write Your Million Dollar Book Accelerator and let's jumpstart your authority building book now. For upcoming dates, go to authoritybuilderpodcast.com slash accelerator. And number three, work with me and my team to get your book done and bring in business. Email me at steve at authoritybuilderpodcast.com and put, I want to write a book in the subject line. See you soon.